The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of December 24th, 2018. On this week's show, Shirley Wong will join us to talk about everyone's favorite story of the year, her account of her father's friendship with Charles Barkley. Jane Levy will also be here to discuss her Babe Ruth biography, The Big Fella. And ESPN's Joel Anderson will help us assess the 30 for 30 documentary, 42 to 1, on Buster Douglas's shocking win over Mike Tyson. Joining me in our Washington, D.C. studio is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Happy holidays, Stefan. We're allowed to say happy holidays on this show, Josh. The war on holidays has not has not yet reached the Washington, D.C. studio of Hang Up and Listen. Um, I just wanted to give you a heads up, Stefan, that we are recording this week's show in advance. Thanks for uh, letting me know. Yep. Uh, also, next week's show, we're recording in advance, so do not come to the studio Okay. on uh, New Year's Eve. Uh, next week is our call-in show. I will not be giving out the phone number. I do not want to encourage more people to call because by the time you would call, it would be too late. But uh, it's going to be good. We got a lot of really good calls. Well, so congratulations. Call and leave a message for us. It's always nice to hear from everybody, especially during the holiday season. It is. Why don't you call? You never write. You never, you never call. call. Uh, but for those of you who did write and did call, we love you most of all. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When I woke up on Saturday, December 15th, every person on the internet was reading and listening to the same story. Eric Umansky of ProPublica tweeted, This is the best story ever. Ohio Governor John Kasich tweeted, What a great story. This really represents the best of America. ESPN's Mike Greenberg, I cannot recall the last sports story I read that touched me more than this one did. Our colleague from Slate, Dan Coyce, Hey, everyone is sharing this, but this is the rare case where it's not because it is awful, but because it's really great and you should read it. And finally, David Burge, never thought I'd get misty over a story about Charles Barkley's friendship with a Chinese cat litter scientist from Muscatine, Iowa. But here we are. Joining us now is the reporter who brought the world that story, which aired on the NPR sports show Only a Game and ran on the Only a Game website. Her name is Shirley Wong, and she's the daughter of Lynn Wong, the cat litter scientist from Muscatine, Iowa, who died of cancer earlier this year, and who before his death forged an unlikely friendship with one of the best basketball players ever. Welcome to the show, Shirley. Hi. It's so rare, Shirley, to um, have a story that affects so many people so dramatically. It's a real gift. Um, So congratulations on that. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's a really special story to me. So I'm glad that people are reacting so emotionally. Um, Be- before we get into our conversation, I want to play a clip from the piece that'll help set it up. Um, this is where your dad 
and Charles Barkley describe how they met. It was like one of the most random things. Yeah, I was on business trip and stayed in one of the hotels and was working in the lobby, and I, I saw Charles Barkley. I was in Sacramento speaking at a, uh, a charity event. So I just wanted to say hi. I don't want to take, take a picture with him. I was just sitting at the bar, and me and your dad were the only two people in there. And we just sit down and started talking. <laughs> He's a super nice guy. And before we knew it, we looked at each other like, yo, man, I'm hungry. And we said, well, let's go to dinner. It turned into a two-hour dinner. And then we actually went back to the bar and just sit there and talk for another couple hours. And the rest is history. So that's just amazing uh, tape. And I picked that exchange because I think it goes a long way to explaining why the story was as powerful as it was, just the sense that there's something really hopeful and the fact that two people can have a simple human connection like this one. Yeah. Charles said to himself that he doesn't have that many close friends. So I can only imagine that maybe my dad was someone who grounded him in some ways. Maybe they had conversations that Charles couldn't access himself. Um, but I guess I'll never really know. I mean, there's so much about their friendship that I will just probably never find out. And Charles really treats me like I'm his friend's daughter, <laughs> not one of his friends, not like my dad. So um, we'll see when maybe he'll tell me more about their friendship some other day. What I found so hopeful was also this the, the way that the story sort of explodes the myth of, of what celebrity athletes are. I mean, Charles Barkley is someone that, you know, when he was playing was known for being a bad person in a lot of ways. I'm no oh. role model, threw someone through a window. And oh. here we see Barkley as this normal, human, sensitive, curious person that's willing not to blow off a fan that walks up to him in a bar in a hotel in Sacramento, but to engage with him. And, you know, the Barkley that we've come to know in his retirement is this jokey, jovial, irreverent guy on TNT. And yet here we see that, you know, that kind of is who he is in life. He was willing to sort of open his arms and talk to this stranger. Yeah. I mean, also when he showed up to the funeral, he was just so panicked. He wasn't really in celebrity mode, in everyone is looking at me mode. He was just kind of running late. <laughs> and, you know, we live in Iowa. Um, and like he said, it's not easy to get to his hometown of Lids, Alabama. It's not the easiest to get to where we live either. So he was alone when he showed up. I kind of wondered, how did this guy get here? Um, and yeah, I guess he's just kind of a really down-to-earth person. And I know that there's a lot of ce celebrity stories out there. Like, celebrities are real people, too. Um, but I've witnessed it myself. He's just actually a really nice guy. Um, I think a lot of people on social media can attest to that, too. But your father was a really nice guy, too. And I think the, 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 the thing that we haven't mentioned yet is that it was your dad who showed up at Charles Barkley's mom's funeral, not just Barkley showing up at, at your dad's funeral. Mm. Um, and, and that gesture 
and the sort of, you know, you know, I think we would look at it sort of, I'm going to go to Charles Barkley's mother's funeral. Seems like such a preposterous <laughs> thing for someone to do. And yet your father just thought of it as, I'm going to go to to show respect for, for my friend and support him. To me, it seems like they're sort of what I would call kindred spirits. You know, they had a very chance encounter and they decided both to act and to follow through on that friendship to exchange numbers and to continue talking. Um, and I don't think a lot of people would kind of sense that connection with other people. They wouldn't really take, they wouldn't go out of their way to do something like that for other people. Um, yeah. And I think my dad was someone who he could feel the gravity of a moment and he could feel very, very convicted about what he needed to do. He just really felt convicted about his feelings and his friendships. So I guess that's why he jetted off. It was confusing to us, too, at the time. We didn't really understand why. It seemed like they had a bond. I don't know if it was spoken or unspoken. Maybe you don't know either about Barkley growing up um, black in Alabama in the 1970s and what he went through and what his mother and grandmother went through to raise him and put him in the position um, to be where he is today. And your father being a Chinese immigrant in Iowa, that's that's how your dad explained it um, in your piece. Yeah, it really surprised me that he kind of had thought about, you know, what are similar racialized experiences in the U.S. Um, and of course, they're really different. Like my dad came with a visa to study for a Ph.D. He was yeah. already on the path set for um, success or financial stability, um, whereas Charlie comes from a low-income family in the south of the U.S. So it was really different. And it was really interesting that they made that connection. But I do think that they come from a very specific generation where that is kind of the belief, right? Like the American dream, they can both build themselves up and they can and anyone can succeed if they work hard enough. Um, and I think they probably my dad did describe their relationship at one point as a soundboard relationship. What made you decide to interview your father about this? And uh, I assume other parts of his life he had gotten ill. Um, tell us tell us the story that, that led you to want to, to know more about his relationship with Barkley and to record it. You know, sometimes I feel like this friendship is wasted on me because I actually just did not know who Charles Barkley was when my dad told me <laughs> that he was friends with Charles Barkley. It sounded like maybe you didn't know that Charles Barkley had thrown someone through a window. Was that? Did I just break oh. news to you? Yeah. Was that news? Oh, my gosh. All I know is that there's a fun nickname about him. It's Round Mound of Rebound, yep. something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Exactly. Hilarious. He's a hilarious dude. <laughs> I really like him on SNL. But um, <laughs> when my dad told me that he was friends with him, I kind of wished he was. He said that he was friends with Joseph Gordon-Levitt because that's kind of he's in my realm of things. Do you know who that is? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I kind of assumed he was a B-list celebrity, um, and then. I started just looking into this friendship because it was a big deal to my dad and asking around and found that people actually reacted to me saying, oh, my dad is friends with Charles Barkley. So I kind of thought, oh, there's something going on here. And then there, were, my dad would send out these Air Maxes and Air Jordans, and then we'd get them back a few weeks later with Charles' signature. Um, and then my dad would send those out to his friends for his birthday. So it just seemed like there's something there and maybe that it was time to kind of take this story seriously. So, and my dad was really sick at the time. And I just knew it, it was a story that I had to get down. How does it feel to have 
I don't know if it's millions or hundreds of thousands, but just people get to know your dad in this way because it seems like hearing Barkley talk about him and what your dad meant to him, that had an effect on you. But just also knowing that this this man who wasn't famous at all, who um, was important to you, but did you know was not somebody who yeah. was well known, like bringing him to the world, like that's a very powerful thing. As a writer, I love to write about my grief. It's it's very easy for me actually to write about my grief. Um, and you know, my dad was all I could think about when he passed away and when he was sick. Obviously, because it's such an intense thing. So I set up a Facebook group where I was asking for people to send letters and books and cards to me to just kind of collectively um, mourn and to feel the intensity that I was feeling. So now I have literally millions of people (laughs) sending all this like love and empathy and condolences my way, like from all directions, kind of like um, rays of light. And Every time someone sends me an email or tweets at me, it makes me cry. It makes me really emotional and it's really overwhelming because I just got back from Hong Kong a few days ago and the next day this story came out and then everything went viral. When my dad passed away, he passed away after I graduated with a degree from school, after my brother graduated from high school. And in the beginning, he was only supposed to live for maybe four months. He had stage four cancer. He had a really, really small chance of surviving. And it just seems like he waited so that this would all be easier for my brother and my mom and I. And now it just seems like he's kind of propelling me along this new path, this new way of fulfilling my dreams of being a radio journalist, you know, telling my stories. So um, it's kind of like a, a, a gift. It feels like a gift that he's still giving me. And it feels like he's still kind of taking care of what's going on down here on earth. Shirley, uh, you're great. Your dad is great. Charles Barkley, also great. Everybody's great. This just the story has <laughs> uh, uh, been such a a wonderful thing to have in the world at the end of 2018. Um, Shirley's website is com. if you want to check out more of her work. We'll link to uh, the piece on our show page. Shirley, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to our conversation with Jane Levy about Babe Ruth, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to be talking with the very same Jane Levy about the movie A League of Their Own, the director of which, Penny Marshall, died last week at the age of 75. To hear our conversation about A League of Their Own, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. 
We like to think of the story of Babe Ruth as a story of self-invention. The kid abandoned to an orphanage who built himself into an icon of the American century. One hot dog, one home run, and one hooker at a time. His transcendence on the field altered the way baseball was played and the way it was observed. The story of Ruth could have ended there the way it did for most athletes of his time. But as Jane Levy reveals in her new best-selling biography, The Big Fella, Ruth, the cultural force, was the product of maybe the first deeply calculated and managed strategy to create an American sports celebrity. Jane Levy is here. Hey, Jane. Hi, how are you? Great. Thank you for coming on the show. Oh, God, my pleasure. This is not a conventional cradle-to-grave biography of Babe Ruth. You frame his life around a cross-country barnstorming trip that he took with fellow Yankees star Lou Gehrig after the historic 1927 season in which Ruth hit 60 home runs. You describe the end of that season and the tour as the best month of his life, and you weave the rest of Ruth's narrative around it. What made that month emblematic of Ruth's life and why? Why did you choose, Jane, to have that be the centerpiece of the book? I wanted to give people a feeling of what it was like to be him and to be with him at the absolute apex of fame in the precise moment in American history when fame was being redefined by new technology, by PR strategies and marketing, and it was being redefined by Babe Ruth and his agent, Christy Walsh, who was the first sports agent, really the model for Jerry Maguire. He didn't literally say, show me the money, but that's what he was saying. You write that uh, Ruth was the first athlete to be recognized as an entertainer who transcended and expanded the parameters of athletic fame. So what were the mechanisms whereby Ruth and Walsh kind of made that happen, made that possible? Well, the first thing, it was economic. Because the, the, the threshold changed. It wasn't just what you could do on a baseball field that they were arguing he should be paid for. It wasn't just the balls he hit out of a ballpark. It was the people he brought into the ballpark. And that profound change is the, the most important expression of why he should have been paid as an entertainer. Fame was being amplified. Remember, when he came into the baseball Fame was small. It was local. It was as big as the circulation of your hometown newspaper. There was no radio. Telegrams, 10-syllable or 10-word telegrams were the most people could send back, you know, from afar, a dispatch that you could send back. Now there's telex and there's a telepix system invented in in January 1925 by the Chicago Tribune and shared by the Daily News in New York, in which you can send pictures overnight. Sure, it was it was costly, and it was saved for big events, but you could send, as they did, a picture of Babe's mistress from New York to Chicago and New York to, to Los Angeles in 1925, and, and his mistress was named Claire, and she became his second wife. Suddenly, her gorgeous, you know, cloched hat face and pert lips are everywhere. It would have, you know, it, 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 pr- prior to that, history was after the fact. Now it's becoming immediate. Yeah. And it's uh, and and I think also the historical context matters too. I mean, when Babe came in to baseball in the mid nineteen tens, this was before World War One. This was not the Roaring Twenties. The economy was not booming the way it did post war, um, and there wasn't the sort of prurient um, the tabloid culture 
that that all of these technologies that you're mentioning I you're going to say like sex, sex wasn't invented until after World War I. <laughs> no, I think just people's interest in reading about sex wasn't quite as, uh, as, 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 as high on their priority list as it was. I think the creation and success of the New York Daily News, which debuted in June 1919, just six months, seven months, whatever it was, before Babe Ruth is sold to the Yankees yeah. by that, yeah. can I say schmuck? Harry Frazee, uh, and it was a worse deal than anybody knew. Um, it, it was as if it was created for him. And in November of that year, the uh, managing editor, a guy named Arthur Clark, uh, uh, devised the idea for back page sports. And, you know, that's in November. They debuted with um, a Fox Terrier story, which is they were breaking people in easy, Naturally. you know. Uh, but by the end of the week, they had a hard sports story on the back, which was um, uh, the local, the big football game, college football game of the week. But there it was, just in time for Babe Ruth to show up in New York and fill the back page with his antics, his big face, you know, and his big life. So – we talked a little bit about how Ruth and Walsh engineered his fame to some degree, but there's also this push and pull, right? Because Ruth didn't want his mistress to be photographed. Um, the fans' interest in his private life fueled a lot of his fame, but it also brought <laughs> Babe Ruth um, some fame that he didn't want. So can you describe for us what how that worked, how that push and pull between Ruth and the press operated at the height of his fame. Well, there was a press box omerta, you know, in, in, the, in those years. Uh, writers knew him and they knew their subjects far better than reporters who have to negotiate for minutes of access sure. uh, know them today. I mean, these guys went to his house for dinner. They, they, they arranged fishing and hunting trips for him in the offseason so they could have a reason to write about him in the offseason. So he was protected until that event in, the, in uh, 1925, uh, August 29th, 1925. And that was a decision made by Captain Joe uh, Patterson, the publisher and founder of the Daily News. It didn't come out of the sports department, but it was landmark because – You're talking about the event of the release of the, the photo of his mistress. And, and naming her yeah. and, and splashing her pretty face across the front page. There wasn't even the back page. the front page <laughs> of the Daily News. And it signifies what uh, one of my favorite authors, uh, Hans Gumbrecht, uh, wrote about in, in 1926 when the interest in the private life is becoming ascendant. You're, and, you're, and you're being marketed for the personality you are, not just for what you do. It wasn't just the omerta in the press box, though, Jane. It was much more of a collaboration. Um, Collusion, edi editorially, anyone? Yeah. Editorially. I mean, you, you mentioned that uh, Stanley Woodward, the sports editor of the New York Herald Tribune at the time, um, he wrote that sports writing in the jazz age was, quote, a low form of art. Um, and the the collaboration between newspapers and Walsh and Ruth wasn't just to hide the, the prurient details of his life. It was actually to burnish his, his celebrity. It was the aw shucks godding up of the athlete um, style, Grantland Rice style of journalism, whereby not only did people like Rice write these crazy columns that compared, you know, Ruth to Olympian gods – Ruth got bylines in newspapers all around the country through something called and the Christie Walsh Syndicate, where local sports writers would ghostwrite columns 
under Ruth's name. The conflict of interest, which is a term I don't think existed then, was profound. So you had Ford Frick, who was a beat writer, covering the Yankees, then covering, then writing under Ruth's name, little ditties about how he felt that day. But Walsh understood that before radio, remember he starts this in 1921, before radio, that was the only way, even if it was an illusion, for fans to hear the putative voice of of their guys, their their heroes. So it was incredibly successful for a very finite period of time. It actually started way back in the, you know, 1911, 1913. But Walsh was the guy who system, systematized it? What's the mm-hmm. word? Yeah. Made it systematic. Yeah. <laughs> so um, Robert Creamer wrote uh, a legendary book, biography of Babe Ruth, Babe the Legend Comes to Life. I think Stefan and I both. The the first book I read as a kid. Yeah. First big baseball book I read. So how do you think about approaching this subject when um, not only Kramer, but Ruth is somebody that's been written about uh, by tons of people over decades um, as uh, a biographer, how do you approach your subject given that material? Well, I knew I didn't want to repeat what had been done. There was no point in that. I, w- I wouldn't have access to the people those guys like Bob Kramer could speak to because unfortunately most of the people I would want to speak to are presently dead. Yeah, Kramer's biography was published in 1974. Right, and there was a slew of them right then in time, timed, I think, to the fact that Henry Aaron was approaching his record, Ruth's record for you know career home runs. So I knew I had to do something different. And when I read all the previous biographies, all of which were really good and contributed something you know, significant to the understanding of him, what stood out in neon was that none of them really explained or talked about his childhood. And I think you could get away with that. Again, it's part of the sports writing culture because sports biography always was a subgenre of real biographies. You'd be left out of the Library of Congress if you tried to write a biography of Winston Churchill and never mentioned where he grew up or what happened to his parents. So it was it was missing. And as a reporter, this chasm said to me not just that it needed to be filled in but that there was a reason that it had been hidden. Well, at the very least, right. There was a reason that it hidden and there was stuff for you to find out. And you've also noted that like modern database research – allowed you to do things that Kramer and other biographers from 40 and 50 years ago couldn't possibly do. Right. I, I, what I expected was that I would be at a, you know, almost disabling disadvantage to not have the same folks to talk to. But what it turned out was that the documents in, in family archives in the Maryland State Archives, New York State Archives, gave me the voices of the people no longer living who that Bob et al. couldn't reach because, you know, Bob would have had to have read on microfiche two years of the Baltimore Sun every day to find what I could find with a click of a mouse. Yeah. And that was the story of his parents' divorce. And that is the key to understanding why he was sent to St. Mary's Industrial School on the western edge of Baltimore, why he was abandoned by his family. And you need to understand the guy, the little boy they called Little George, in order to understand why and how he had the personality and the drive to become the big fella. So, May, let's talk for a second about 
myths and legends that have attached themselves to Babe Ruth before we move on to whether uh, Adam Adovino could <laughs> strike him out every time. So what are some of the myths and legends that you looked into? And what were some of them that held up and some that did not? Well, for example, you know, in 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 the absence of fact and in the absence of Ruth's commenting on it, two myths grew up about his childhood. One was that he was an orphan, and that was only because people thought St. Mary's was an orphanage. It wasn't. It was, an, in, it was a reform school that also took wayward boys, abandoned boys, and incorrigibles. And that was the other myth, that Babe Ruth was sent there because he was some kind of petty, youthful criminal who could not be contained. And neither of those things is true. And that's what I was able to dig out of the family archives. He was sent there because his parents' marriage disintegrated and the family disintegrated in the most horrible, tragic kind of way. And his father didn't want to be dealing with him Mm. once his mother was out of the way. The other myth, um, and I'm not sure it's quite as factual as that one, but the the image of Ruth that I think most people have is of this bon vivant who loved life and, you know, hot dogs, women, and home runs. But the picture that really emerges that you, that, you, that you paint is of someone who really was sort of had narcissistic personality disorder. That This was a lonely <laughs> man who needed the adulation and needed to be around as many sycophants as possible in order to, to thrive. And the portrait of Ruth after he retires from the Yankees was really – and heartbreaking to yeah. me. It and, was heartbreaking to me. The way that he was basically abandoned by the team. I mean, the guy that basically created the franchise, the Yankees as we know them. And he was an outcast. And he lives this sort of sad life. I don't like to diagnose people from the grave, Stefan. So I don't know if I would call <laughs> Stephen it. Stefan does not, like that. Not narcissistic like that. <laughs> personality disorder. But I think his abandonment by his parents and then the abandonment of him by not just by the Yankees but by all of organized baseball after he retired in June 1935 is heartbreaking because the what do I do with myself in 1935 uh, was a complete reminder in a way in a reincarnation of the way he had been cast aside by his family and he thought of baseball and he thought of the fans as as his family. So let's talk about Adam Adovino. Relief, <laughs> relief pitcher for the Rockies said, I had an argument with the coach in AAA about Babe Ruth's effectiveness in today's game. I said, Babe Ruth with that swing, swinging that bat, I got him hitting 140 with eight homers. I'm not trying to disrespect him. You know, rest in peace. <laughs> That's the best part of that you know, quote, by the way. No, wait, it, you it's know, better. You know, shout out to Babe Ruth. But it was a different game. I mean, the guy ate hot dogs and drank beer and did whatever he did. It was just a different game. He also said, I would strike Babe Ruth out every time. Yeah, Babe Ruth would eat his jock. <laughs> um, I actually— You need to send uh, Adam Adovino a copy of the book, number I, one. I've tried to do that. And a copy uh, of Babe Ruth's jock. And a copy— <laughs> no, uh, Yeah, exactly. No, I'm saying Babe would eat his jock. Adam's jock, right. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Um, I actually— did talk to baseball analytics people and baseball hitting coaches about this very issue because, I mean, that's the wonder of baseball is you're always comparing, you know, decades and eras and people, you know, of course, reduce it to numbers and analytics and da-da-da-da-da-da. But 
the guy who's sort of the go-to guy these days at a place called Driveline, uh, Jason Ockhart, I asked him that specifically. Like a hitting coach. Yeah. He said, give him a 30-ounce bat and he'd be fine. His mechanics were so modern. And even his ability to describe what his body was doing and how it moved in space in order to generate leverage and torque was extraordinary. That was fascinating. I didn't I, – I had never read Ruth's, Ruth talking about his swing and what he was able to do to generate power. I mean he's definitely not known as like a Ted Williams science of hitting kind, right. of, kind of dude. No, he's not. And, and you know, some quotes were made up by his ghostwriter sure. Ford Frick in a 28 um, – biography or whatever it was called. But he, for example, could explain to you, and he was imitating Joe Jackson, why he stood at the very back of the plate on almost a diagonal to it because you got more rotation of your hips. And the rotation uh, rotational energy is what you're transferring into linear energy to make the ball go far. So he, he could actually describe that you know his hips could move more through space, greater – I said distance and Jason Ockhart corrected me. I don't remember what the term is. It's a highfalutin thing. But he, t- but he completely got it. Now, he had to slow himself down, and there's film of watching him what you call walk through pitches because the slop he faced from so many of the small guys on the mound um, made him have to time that stuff in a, in a very uh, concerted way. So I totally believe that if you drop Adam Adovino into – 1927 or whatever, he could strike all those guys out. It's the question is if you, if Babe Ruth with all of his skills, if you trained him the way that players are trained today, I bet he would kick ass and like, and had a 30 ounce bat instead of a 54 ounce ounce bat. bat. And like back then, like the notion of a guy who had just come in and pitch for one inning didn't exist. Also, back then, they had mm-hmm. spitballs and mud balls, which you don't have today. Also, they we didn't have, to, have African-American players. <laughs> we've got we've to be on a, on a level. If we're on a level playing field, I think the babe would do just fine. I'm with you. I think, and, and remember, he had the other advantage. He was a advantage. shitty fielder, though. <laughs> uh, he had the other advantage of having been a great pitcher. So he understood the mechanics of you know, the, the kinetic chain from that, that creates energy from both ends of 60 feet, 6 inches. The other thing that really fascinated me is that Ruth basically chose to become a home run hitter. Nobody was hitting home runs. Then when he hit 29 in 1919, it was a major league record. Um, And this sort of weds the two ideas about Ruth. He recognized that nobody was doing something. Therefore, if I did it, I will become a great player and a celebrity. And also he was recognizing an inefficiency in baseball. Um, And, you know, the other thing that, that people talk about is like, how would Ruth have done if they had shifted on him? That was another question that I read people talking about. What would the modern Babe Ruth have done against the shift? And you actually say here that Ruth recognized this. He said, they did that to me once in the American League. This is after he retired. Um, he, he told a, a writer, I could have hit 600 that year slicing singles to left. Why didn't you? Ruth was asked. That wasn't what the fans came to see. I'd be remiss, Jane, if I didn't point out the best headline that you unearthed about Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth, comma, mad, comma, denies orgies. Thank you, Chicago Tribune. 
Jane Levy is the author of The Last Boy about Mickey Mantle, Sandy Koufax, about Sandy Koufax, and the big fella, Babe Ruth, and the world he created. It makes an excellent New Year's gift. Jane Levy, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, guys. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On February 11th, 1990, in the Tokyo Dome, heavyweight boxing champion Mike Tyson fought James Buster Douglas in what was supposed to be a tune-up for a showdown against Evander Holyfield. Instead, Douglas dominated the fight before Tyson sent him to the canvas with a right uppercut in the eighth round. But Douglas got up just before the count of 10, or at least that was what the referee decided, and he continued to pummel Tyson after. Here's how Larry Merchant and Jim Lampley called the climactic moments in the 10th round on HBO. What an uppercut by Douglas. Hey. Down goes Tyson. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It's over. It's over. Mike Tyson has been knocked out. Unbelievable. This makes Cinderella look like a sad story. Let's go ahead and call it the biggest upset in the history of heavyweight championship fights. Say it now, gentlemen. James Buster Douglas, undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. The fight is the subject of a new ESPN 30 for 30 documentary titled 42 to 1. And joining us to discuss Buster, Mike, and the movie is Joel Anderson, a senior writer at ESPN. Hey, Joel. Thanks for having me on. Bring us back to 1990 and the context of this fight, Joel. This was pre-crazy Mike Tyson. He was 23 years old, arguably at the peak of his boxing skills. Douglas, by contrast, was 29, the seventh-ranked heavyweight. He was a little doughy, and he had been mostly known for being labeled a quitter. Right. Yeah, I mean, there was nothing as indomitable or as invincible as Mike Tyson in 1990. Uh, I mean, the fight before, he had fought a fairly like competitive like heavyweight uh Carl the Truth Williams and knocked him out in 93 seconds like just which is just 2 seconds longer than it took him to knock out Michael Spinks who was at that time you know thought to have been you know, I, I think he did actually have a share of the heavyweight title at the time they fought that fight so there's nothing or nobody in, in at least in my lifetime to that point that had shown any indication that that, that they could ever beat him or that there was anything that, that he had any sort of weaknesses like or maybe the, you know maybe in retrospect we didn't acknowledge that there were any weaknesses but he had never given us any reason to believe that he would get beaten yeah i mean the thing that's so fascinating about this in retrospect was that you had mike tyson who couldn't be beaten and he was a huge draw and like a mega celebrity and yet it seemed like in this case the fact that he couldn't be beaten sort of outstripped the mega celebrity and how much we love a dominant athlete in sports because nobody cared about this fight at all. Apparently, it was they, they booked it in Tokyo because right. they figured no one was going to show up if they had it in Vegas or Atlantic City. And that to me is 
among many things that's surprising about this fight in retrospect. It just shows how um, the Mike Tyson's dominance had gotten a little bit boring and how we can get lulled, whether it's in sports or anything else, into thinking that because a thing is a certain way today, then it's going to be that way tomorrow, that his dominance was taken for granted. This was seen as an event, as so many events in boxing are, as a cash grab more than an actual sporting event, and thus not something that we, the viewing public, should have any interest in. Can we, can we real quickly, like, it's not absurd, especially for some of the younger listeners here, to say that Mike Tyson was thought to be more famous and more dominant an athlete than Michael Jordan at that point, right? Like, that, it, it's not absurd to say that. No, it's not absurd at all. No, and Michael, I think, Michael Jordan hadn't won an NBA championship yet, right. had he? Right. No, he hadn't. Not and in we, 1990. Um, so let's talk about Buster Douglas. The movie um, focuses a lot on his lineage. His father, Billy Douglas, was a fighter. And there's a lot of conversation, a lot of clips about how Billy had this amazing work ethic about um, how he was always in shape in contrast to his son and that Buster just never really had this killer instinct, never really wanted to do the hard work. Now, Joel, I'm wondering if you've bought into that storyline. It's a little bit um, simplistic. I also, we're looking at Billy Douglas's uh, record. <laughs> the dude went 41, 16, and one. Like he's right. not, they made him kind of sound like he was the greatest <laughs> he was a contender. Yeah, I'm thinking, yeah, as they're saying that, I'm like, oh, did, did Billy Douglas, like, you know, beat Ken Norton or something? Or, you know what I mean? Like, I was like, did I miss did I miss his career and not ever, not ever hearing about it? I mean, but, the yeah. guy had six-pack abs, which is like a victory that, in and of itself. In the 60s and 70s? Yeah, huge win. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, there, there's no reason. Like, nobody had that, not even like Walter Payton probably. But, yeah, um, yeah, it's. It, it, it was kind of weird, but I mean, the thing is, though, is that, you know, I guess they had to sell the narrative that, like, Buster was, like, a disappointment. Um, and I don't know, I guess, like, you know, they, they talked a little bit about the Tony Tucker fight, the, the fight where he, you know, supposedly quit. Uh, was it his, his first championship fight? Yeah, a chance right. to Yeah, a, a chance to, you know, get his first belt. He's dominating the fight through the first few rounds, and, like, I think it was the 10th round. Uh, or at least the second half of the fight, Tony Tucker like recovers and beats him, and they 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 sell it as Buster quitting. And I'm just like, well, you know, Tony Tucker was a good fighter. Like, I mean, he he was the champion. I don't I, I don't know why Buster had to be the loser and had to be like in such bad shape um, for them to to sell this. Like, I, I just kind of felt like that was something they said, and that you know, it could have been that Buster just was not a particularly gifted fighter, um, but. I mean, he had a better record than his father. He got much farther than his father his father ever did. And I I don't know. I mean, you know, Buster did seem to have difficulty staying in shape and working out all the time. But that's not I mean, we just watched the guy Tyson Fury who has that same difficulty. Like he's a current heavyweight fighter now. I mean, it's not like that's it's not uncommon for heavyweight fighters to have difficulty training and cutting weight and everything else. And like Buster um, had those same problems, but you know, maybe his father wasn't happy with him not being able to have a six pack, but I mean, that, that could be just, you could blame that on Buster's mother as much as anything else, you know? You know, this is one of the problems I had with the documentary. It felt a little formulaic and that they were trying to hang some sort of narrative, some sort of family conflict narrative 
over the proceedings because we really didn't get a sense, like you said, Joel, about just what it was about Billy Douglas that ended up alienating Buster because Buster does walk away from his father. He doesn't have him coach him any war anymore. And there's a lot of you know intimating that Billy drove him too hard, but you don't really get a sense of where the disappointment truly was that he wasn't mm-hmm. the heavyweight champion already, that he wasn't Mike Tyson. Um, so that to me, like I felt that it wasn't like there wasn't enough depth in exploring the relationship between uh, Buster and his father. Buster's father is is dead. Um, his mother also died a month before the Tyson fight. And the fact that Buster's mother died as he was training and that in the ring, the moment when he won the fight and was asked how he did this, he said, my mother, you kind of have to impose a family storyline <laughs> right. on it. I mean, because that's the storyline he imposed on it himself and you had Buster and his brother um, doing present day interviews and it seems to have been a significant dynamic in their family according to them right and I mean I, I'm I definitely think that there's something there and I mean you know they even you know talk about that in the documentary that you know the stories of fathers and their sons who they train I mean you know we've got Floyd Mayweather and um, I think you know, Oscar De La Hoya's dad was involved heavily in his career and later had to you know kind of back off so it's not uncommon for there to be conflict w- between fathers and sons and fighting. Um, but the idea that Billy Douglas was like some great accomplished fighter, like he just seemed like a guy who really was good at working out. We didn't get into James Buster Douglas knockout boxing for the Sega master system. Oh uh, my God. Uh, that's three nine. That's a, that's a whole other episode, but I wanted to ask you guys about your experience hearing about, this fight or watching the fight, if you happen to watch it, I can remember as um, almost turning 10, as uh, children are wont to do, Mm -hmm. turning on HBO, but us not subscribing to HBO. So actually seeing the like um, snow on the screen and trying to figure out what was going on. Uh, Sometimes you would do that for other reasons, but in this case, to see what was happening in the boxing, like kind of hearing... (laughs) hearing the audio and just like seeing the kind of snowy picture. I remember doing that and that kind of adding to, for me, like the notion that this was, this was like happening in Japan. It like seemed like it was happening like on another planet that Mike Tyson was losing. And just the whole, the whole thing just feeling like it wasn't real to me. I don't think I was aware of the fight until I heard the result. Because, you know, it wasn't like back then, of course, there's no social media. Um, Maybe your local newspaper had a story on it or a wire story about um, the buildup to the fight. But it wasn't anything like that. So um, I had no idea that Mike Tyson, you know, usually you would just hear about, oh, man, he knocked that dude out in 90 seconds or whatever. Mike Tyson had a fight. But it wasn't, there was none of that. So um, I think I woke up the next morning and either either saw it on ESPN or maybe I, like, I, I, I've been trying to figure this out for the last few days, like how I found out. But I, all I, all I remember is that when I heard the result, I was like, Oh no, that's not true. Like that's, that sounds like it was, it didn't come to me in the moment. I had to find out later. Right. It was still like you'd, you'd pick up, either turn on ESPN or pick up the paper the next day. And there would only be, you know, on ESPN, there would only be stills <laughs> because it was on HBO and you wouldn't get full clips. Um, and I just I remember, and I was not a kid, and I remember being like, "What? Like, really? Like the shock of 
wait, Tyson lost in Japan? Yeah. Like the vaguely being aware that the fight was happening, um, but being stunned to read about it, you know, whenever it was, 12 hours later. You know what one of the more stunning uh, things was watching the fight now and watching the clips in the documentary is that um, Buster Douglas seemed to have more people there in his corner supporting him for the mm-hmm. fight. And like Tyson, they didn't even bring, what's the thing called? The metal thing that you put under your- The cold compress eye. thing oh, to, yeah. bring, to reduce swelling, yeah. yeah. It seemed like Tyson, like, um, I mean, this is just, it's almost, again, like too pad of a storyline, like the, the, the overconfidence, the tortoise and the hare thing. It's just like, it honestly- See, like Tyson who comes into the ring wearing like a ripped white T-shirt. His like corner people aren't even wearing like fancy jackets or anything. They don't have like any equipment. It just <laughs> seems like he basically went to Tokyo to like cash a big check, go to like uh, the zoo or whatever, make some media appearances. They just like zoo, yeah. dropped in um, to to the Tokyo Dome. It's like, all right, let me just beat this guy's ass and then I'll like get get on the plane and, and go And back then I home. can really start training to fight Holyfield in six right. months. And right. then on, I, the, on, the, on the Buster Douglas side, the thing that I found so hilarious is he has all these people in his corner and they're all wearing jackets that say James Douglas. It's like, does he, <laughs> is he not aware of how nicknames work? Um, <laughs> usually the nickname would be on the jacket. It would say Buster or something, but they all just say James Douglas. It basically reads just as opponent. Right. <laughs> right. He's like one of those, like the, the, this early Saturday morning wrestling guy with a guy that actually uses his name where you, who you know is not going to win. Uh, but yeah, like they didn't even think, care enough. I mean, who actually did anybody, I mean, do we know? Are we for certain that like the Buster Douglas thing didn't come? Didn't we didn't start referring to him that much later? Like, so he could uh, after that Sega Genesis game? Because no, I don't, they were like, calling no, him they Buster were Douglas. Him Buster, yeah. it was the jacket thing is inexplicable. I cannot yeah. come up with a coherent reason why the jacket said James B- Douglas. Buster costs more than James. Like, we <laughs> Extra letter. lettering, right? Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, yeah right. by the letter. If you had, if you, so I read because um, I was like fascinated with Mike Tyson, but obviously not fascinated enough to know that he was fighting James uh, James Douglas that that night. But I had read um, this biography on Mike Tyson called Fire and Fury by Jose Torres, who was like a, uh, a former fighter back in the 60s and was really close to Customato and other people like that. And if you read that book, you could see in retrospect, like how this all started to happen, that like Mike Tyson had sort of spiraled out of control, that you know, he may or may not have been dealing with drug issues that, um, you know, he had that marriage with Robin Givens where, I mean, he abused the hell out of her. Um, you know, his, um, his longtime management, you know, Caton and Jacobs, um, he was having difficulties with them. And then Don King had moved in. And I wanted it, it, the reason that his corner looks so sparse is that he'd lost Kevin Rooney um, not long before that or in the, in, a, in, a, in the year or two before that. And so like all the like the world around Mike Tyson had imploded in relatively short order. And it just it just, you know, then he has this fight against uh, in, in Tokyo against Buster Douglas. And you could kind of see in retrospect, like, oh, nothing was right. Right. Like, nothing was right in Mike Tyson's life. And then it's like, OK, go fight this guy who's five inches and 20 pounds heavier than you. It really does feel, again, in retrospect, like some inflection point in Mike Tyson's career. Um, you know, again, I, I, like you did, uh, Joel, I went and read about the aftermath a little bit more. And, you know, it was like Tyson fought four more times in the next sort of <clears throat> couple of years. 
before he was convicted of raping Desiree Washington. That was in, in 1991. Um, he spent four years in, in prison. He, he got his titles back, but he wasn't the same force. I mean, he would start losing. He lost to Holyfield. Um, he lost to Lennox Lewis a few years later. I mean, it's this was a, a, a definite turning point. And the thing about the documentary is that it's really about Buster Douglas. This is not a Mike Tyson documentary. Tyson does not appear to have cooperated in any way. There's no sit down with Tyson, which would have added a lot because Buster is not the most dynamic on screen. Right. Right. Yeah. He's kind of, you know, for the understanding, they said he was really tired, but that that doesn't really, he was tired in the lead up to the promos of the documentary, but that doesn't explain the kind of, you know, the, like his like laconic uh, demeanor throughout, you know, but maybe he's just, you know, like. He just seems like a sort of a good-natured, yeah, you know, like guy, guy from Columbus. You know, yeah, like he's not really an entertainer, right? It'll be interesting to have had this fight happen in our modern media. Mo- oh. And like, because um, we've read about this in so many other contexts, whether it's like Mickey Mantle and the media covering for his drinking and womanizing and bad behavior. But I feel like with Tyson you know, Bill Simmons has talked about the Tyson zone and believing that everything you hear about Mike Tyson is true because nothing. So uh, there, there's nothing that's too outrageous um, that you think Mike Tyson couldn't have done it. But I feel like there was a reverse Tyson zone back before the Douglas fight where, as you said, Joel, reading about all of this stuff, in retrospect, he was involved in so much self-destructive and behavior towards himself, horrific behavior towards Others was not taking the sport seriously. And I think I, I find it much more likely that he was everything that we thought he was. That's one of the things I would have liked to have known. And then we don't know that, you know, right after the fight that, of course, you know, Don King, you know, we, we do. They do mention it, that Don King challenged the result um, because, you know, uh, his theory was that they took too long on the count when uh, Mike Tyson had knocked him down in the eighth round. Right. And the Buster Douglas says he never even got a chance to really enjoy it. He never got the chance to enjoy the beating Mike Tyson yeah, because that, as soon that as he really won. sad, right? That was incredibly yeah. sad to me. And there's yeah. also just the, <laughs> we, we all know that there's a history of fixing boxing matches. There's a f- history of judges being shady. What a, this is, I, I'm again like the Tyson's thing. I'm willing to believe anything about f- boxing matches being mm. fixed, except for the notion that this was somehow fixed for Buster Douglas. <laughs> 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 oh, like we're gonna make sure that Buster doesn't get counted out in the eighth round because obviously we need to preserve the huge bankable career of Buster Douglas at the expense <laughs> of Mike Tyson. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing is, and like, why would any of them? Have like ruined what would have been a tremendous payday for that event. I mean, there was still tremendous in- interest in the Evander Holyfield Tyson fight when both of them were diminished fighters. You know, like five or six years later. Mm-hmm. So the idea that they would have like somehow ruined that uh, in 1990 or 91, whenever that fight would have happened for Buster Douglas, just doesn't make a lot of sense. But I mean, Don King wants us to believe a lot of nonsensical things, right? The documentary and ESPN 30 for 30 is titled 42 to 1. We didn't say why it was titled 42 to 1 because those were the odds. 
in the fight. Uh, Joel Anderson is a senior writer at ESPN. Joel, thanks a lot for coming on the show to talk about it. Oh, my pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. And now it is time for After Balls. We're going to do something a little different, Josh. Whoa. <laughs> Hang on. It's the end of the year. Stefan. Go crazy. Wait. Are you sure you want to do this? The eggnog is spiked <laughs> here in the studio. So here's what we're going to do. We talked to Jane Levy. We didn't talk about Babe Ruth's many nicknames. That's true. We didn't. So I found a website, findnicknames.com. Seems totally on the up and up. It lists 23 nicknames for Babe Ruth. I'm going to do sort of like my afterball will be the in- introduction to afterballs. And then at the end of my afterball, we will pick It's like the, the afterball is eating the afterball's tail here. Of the afterball. Okay. Got it. Totally, right. totally on board. All right. So 23 nicknames for Babe Ruth are listed on this website. Jane covers some of them in her book. She mentions at the height of his popularity, newspapers in this new age of, of sort of salacious and godding up of, uh, of athletes seized on many, many nicknames for, for great players at the time. And the Babe being the Babe, the first back page sports athlete in New York and pretty much in the world, um, earned many, many different monikers. The obvious ones, Babe, the Great Bambino, the Big Fella, which I really didn't know, sort of a more obscure one. The Big Fellow, O-W, also <laughs> yeah. was how it was rendered in many newspapers. The Sultan of Swat, probably up there. I think the Babe, Great Bambino, Sultan of Swat would be your three leaders in the clubhouse, the most popular nicknames for the Babe. Sure. But there were many more. The Big Bam, that was used a lot in, in the press. The Behemoth of Bust comes in at number six. <laughs> On the list. I like that one. You like that one? And then there were a lot that referred to the babes, um, his his sort of status, sort of trying to find other words for sultan. Yeah. Um, so we had the caliph of clout. <laughs> okay. The wazir of lamb. Okay. The maharaja of mash. I think this was just like one guy just sitting. Uh, you think? On deadline one day, just uh, going going for all of the alliterative possibilities. And here's one more. Oh, there are many more. But here's one more that uh, fits into this category. Also might apply today to a musician, the Raja of Rap. There we go. So if there's a, if there's a, a young rapper out How there, that's available. That, why do you think that none of his nicknames included the word king? Is it just like too obvious? I'm not. I'm only up to number 12. Okay. So there could be the a king, king of, lower on the list. The king there. of clout? The king of clout? Not on there. We had the caliph of clout. Maybe, you know, America, 
still reeling from the monarchy, from being under the thumb of the English monarchy. King of Kazam. King of SWAT. King of whatever. All right. Probably was out there, though. Probably some newspaper in Muscatine, Iowa, you know, called him the king of cloud during his uh, during that barnstorming trip. All right. So Raja of Rap, let's move along here. Number 12, the blunderbuss. Probably referred by this nickname when he was young, naive, and inexperienced in social graces. Back to our X of Y, the mammoth of Maul, because <laughs> okay. he was big. The mauling mastodon, the mauling monarch. Right now, I'm just going down the list. We're up to 16 now. Here's another one, the Wally of Wallop. Now, I'm not really sure what a Wally is, W-A-L-I. Back to blunderbuss yeah. for a second. Sure. Short-barreled, large-board gun with a flared muzzle used at short range. Hmm. I, I don't know. It's a good-sounding word. He kind of – We're just informed by Patrick, our producer, who looked it up that Wally is a custodian or protector of something. The explanation on findnicknames.com, some may have considered him a saint in the world of baseball, defeating his opponents thoroughly and winning seven world championships. You clearly have not seen the movie Looper, in which a blunderbuss plays a uh, major role. Looper starring Jordan Jordan uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Just Uh, to bring it full circle. All together. Uh, The king, king, 18, the king of Crash. King of Crash. 19, the king of Clout. 21, the king of Swing. Wait, king of Clout is in there? Yes. Okay. You would have been a great headline writer. Thank you, findnicknames.com. Yes. Colossus of Crash, Terrible Titan, And finally, number 23, The Kid of Crash. That's bad. That's really bad. So our finalists, I think, are the Blunderbuss, the Maharaja of Mash, and the Caliph of Clout. I think Maharaja of Mash is probably the best one. I like it too. Josh, what's your Maharaja (laughs) of Mash? Without further ado. Uh, on last week's show, I pleaded with you, the hang-up listeners, to help me excavate something that definitely needed excavating. That thing was the promo work of legendary golden-throated play-by-play man Pat Summerall, who moved from CBS to Fox in 1994, as documented in Brian Curtis's oral history that we discussed on last week's show. Didn't you get a kick out of Fox TV's Pat Summerall promoting the TV show House of Buggin'? During Sunday's 49ers-Cowboys game, asked the Chicago Tribune's Terry Armour on January 17th, 1995. I think I probably did, Terry, but as I explained last week, I could not find any video or audio of Summerall shouting out House of Buggin'. I could not find this on the entire internet. I looked through the whole internet. I apparently did not look behind the the can of beans on the third shelf because my new hero, Ed Carter, tweeted me a link to a YouTube video of the full game broadcast of the 49ers-Cowboys-NFC Championship game. Oh, you were searching narrowly, in other words. I you was. were looking for House of Bug and Pat Summerall when you should have been watching every game that Summerall <laughs> called. And Ed Carter, this is a tip for all of you listeners out there, if you want to uh, do a good deed. He didn't just send a link to the video of the whole game. He sent the exact time code Pat Summerall reads HOB ad at 2523. So here, queued up as per Ed Carter's instructions, is the great moment in the history of Pat Summerall, the NFL, and life on planet Earth. 
Tonight, join award-winning comedian John Leguizamo for the new hot comedy that critics are calling outrageously funny and a laugh riot, The House of Buggin'. Got your brand new episode tonight at 8.30 Eastern, 9, uh, 7.30 Central, after The Simpsons on Fox's Funny Sunday. Does it live up to expectations? Totally. Fox's Funny Sunday is also pretty good. You might have noticed that Summerall refers to it as the House of Buggin', which... Given his age, I think. Forgivable. Forgivable. Also, he seems to struggle with the concept of central time. Again, we've all we've all fought that battle. But let's not lose focus here. Mission accomplished. Problem solved. Now we can die in peace. Happy holidays. All gave some. Some are all. That is our show for today. It's our second to last show of the year. What a year. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows, subscribe, reach out, send me Summerall-related time codes. Uh, go to slate.com slash hangup. Email us at hangup at slate.com. not going to give you the phone number, though. Not, not going to give you the phone number. You'll, you'll hear the call-in show next week. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. You can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>